welcome to the first episode of Contrast with me, Cat Boyd, and my co-host David Jameson, who some of you will know from what's your podcast called, David? Oh, my my common space podcast is called Beyond the Noise. Beyond the Noise. Um, I wanted to call this podcast Beyond the Boys because you only ever have men on your podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> some people think that that's unplanned and that it's a mistake, but it's not. It's about it. It's about my hatred of women. <laughs> David Jameson is a misogynist. You heard it here first. Yeah. If you do want to tweet at us about anything you've heard in today's podcast, um, then please feel free to tweet your feminist backlash at david.jameson is that your twitter handle at david jameson un- no david underscore jameson seven or something like that. <laughs> I don't know how you I, were not an early adopter i was of twitter. not an early adopter of twitter and my twitter is at kitty cat Boyd, which clearly i set up before i knew i would get the big blue tick <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like one of those things where people have an email address that's like Cute kitty cat, punk rock 79. Yeah, is that your email address? <laughs> At hotmail.co.uk. <laughs> yeah, please feel free to send any hate, hate mail, mail to that address and it will be answered promptly. So, yeah. So what have you been up to? Um, I mean, watching the news. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what have I been up to? Well, I can tell you what Donald Trump's been up to. Oh. Um, is he your favourite person on Twitter? Yeah, I think he probably is. I mean, you hear that Trump's... You hear that Twitter's always sort of on the verge of collapse or something like that because it's such a grim format. I'm convinced that Trump is one of the factors keeping it alive. Even um, Kanye West or uh, Ye or whatever he's called (laughs) on uh, Twitter these days, even he has quit it, apparently. But yeah, Trump has been sort of uh, more and more displaying his sort of what is it, macular degener- de- degeneration or something like that? Like his brain capacity is clearly in decline. I used to not be a believer in this theory, by the way. Yeah. I used to think, well, this is yet another cheap shot at uh, poor old Donald Trump. <laughs> poor old <laughs> Donald Trump. I mean, although when you compare his macular degeneration to that of Joe Biden's, yes. then, I mean, Biden is definitely... Further gone. Further gone. Did you see that thing that Joe Biden said when he was doing that rally recently? Was the, he was like at the... Like, About the kids. Yeah. yeah. That poor kids can be just as good at school as white kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By, Joe Biden is a racist. You yes. heard it here. So, uh, one racist with de- deteriorating brain matter <laughs> and lessening uh, brain density or the other... But I, I am convinced that, you know, they often say as well that that's, that degeneration can be sped up by like a traumatic incident, stress, a blow to the head, uh, that sort of thing. I wonder if the, the election campaign, which is going to be wild, is going to be wild, right? Yeah. I wonder if that is accelerating. So first of all, there was the Greenland stuff, oh, which is now yeah. done to death, but absolutely fantastic. When he did the, uh, you know, the Trump Tower on Greenland, mm. I thought, see, he does have a sense of humour. He's not totally oblivious to the world around him. <laughs> but then he cancelled the diplomatic meeting <laughs> <laughs> with Denmark because they wouldn't let him do it. Yeah, that. so there's part of me that thought the same. I was like, Trump, maybe Trump is, you know, making his own meme content. Like, that's quite funny. Mm. But there's also part of me that thinks some White House advisor has created that meme, which if you've not seen it, you should check it out. Mm -hmm. It's um, Trump Tower superimposed on Greenland, basically. Um, I do wonder if, like, this White House advisor has made it and, like, pushed it over the desk for her, Donald Trump, to look at. Like, it's a... You know, artist's rendering of what <laughs> Greenland might look like mm. after Trump has made his purchase. He, he then went much more crazy with um, a lengthy quote over several tweets by someone called Wayne Allen Root, who's obviously like a right-wing shock jock type radio mm. pundit in the United States. And they have hundreds of them over there. I'm reliably informed that even by their standards, he is a nut job, right? <laughs> And so this is a lengthy quote that Trump, of course, put on his own Twitter feed. Thank you to Wayne Allen Root for the very nice words. Here comes the quote. 
President Trump is the greatest president for Jews and for Israel in the history of the world, not just America. He is the best president for Israel in the history of the world, and the Jewish people in Israel love him. And you're going to get a little bit of the impersonation here. Is this, this is, does he not also say the thing about the king of Israel? This is that. But and the thing that I love about it is the next tweet starts with the word like. And my thing, the thing that I love about Donald Trump is he's a mean girl. And this is what a lot of people misunderstand uh, about, right? Yeah, he so basically was, is saying to like all communities in the US, you can't sit with us. <laughs> yeah, so he says, he goes, he goes, like, he's the king of Israel. <laughs> Which I love. Uh, they love him like he is the second coming of God. Mm. But American Jews, and he said something else uh, along those lines later on, but American Jews don't know him or like him. They don't even know what they're doing any, anymore, doing or saying anymore. It makes no sense. But that's okay. If he keeps doing what he's doing, he's good for all Jews, blacks, gays. Oh. What? <laughs> what just happened? Was that Alexa? Yeah, it was Alexa. Okay. I'll say that one again. All Jews, blacks, gays, everyone, which I love uh, for the resurrection of blacks and gays apart from anything else. <laughs> I thought that was just a thing that like English racists said in like the 1970s. No, Trump is bringing it back. Yeah. I wish our listeners could see your uh, Trumpian hand gestures. Yeah, so it, you really got it. The uh, the effect of this is is limit, limited by the medium, but you should see I'm making a little sort of okay type hand, yeah, little like, pinching fingers. Like the pinch, like the the okay emoji. Yeah, yeah, a uh, little pinching hand that he always does. But is that not supposed to be a thing? Is that not supposed to be like some sort of alt-right white supremacy thing? I mean, I don't know because I'm not really down with... Yeah. The, like, I mean, I, I realise I do sound deeply uninformed here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as I understand it, it's used in some circles. I don't, I don't know that Trump's doing that, but it's used in some circles to signify kind of uh, white supremacist ideas or, or whatever. But for most people, it's just the okay emoji. Yes, which I, I gather is part of the joke. Talk to me about Noodle Man. Oh yeah, so this is my favourite person on Twitter Mm -hmm. right now. This is Andrew Booten. He's just a guy, right? So we've gone from the President of the United States of America to just a guy. But he's been retweeted um, many, many times. I think we're now at 823 retweets. Um, He's the stir-fry guy. So he's tweeted a picture of his dinner and the following text, he says, had a Chinese this evening. I mean, we'll, we'll deconstruct every line of this because that is, that is not Chinese food that he's cooked. <laughs> so, had a Chinese this evening, chicken, £2.35. Fresh, well, I mean, I would put fresh in scare quotes here. Fresh ed- egg noodles on clearance, 24p. All natural ingredient sauce, 75p. Stir fry veg on clearance, 55p. Seven minutes, total. £3.89, enough for four, equals 97 pence each. Don't tell me we have food poverty in this country. It's just idleness. Mm. And he's tweeted a picture of his dinner, which looks like cat sick. Yeah. It's like noodly, grotesque, yellow stuff. It's It's the most insipid looking stuff, right, that you've ever seen in your life. It's totally great. Uh, The whole thing is great. But the thing that the thing I love about this is thinking about his family. Right, so yeah, so this is what I was thinking as well. So he's made this calculation about feed, feeds four, right? Yeah. So making the assumption that some poor woman married this guy, can you just imagine how insufferable he would have been making that stuff, right? Yeah. He'd be like, no, hold on one second till I fry up this clearance stir fry <laughs> yeah you see how difficult is this come and watch children Timothy I don't know why one of them's called Timothy come and watch Timothy D- Judy come and watch this is how you not be a pov okay yeah. we're self-sufficient in this household we are self-sufficient we don't we don't complain we don't go to the uh, the dole queue <laughs> in this household we get by because it's doable I mean the Please, I implore every listener to go and check out Andrew Button's tweet, and um, because you really need to see this picture of his food for it to be to be believed. Mm. I mean, so not only is he 
cooking this disgusting dinner and saying, don't tell me we have food poverty. I also, I looked up his bio and it turns out like, so he says his bio is former sailor and soldier. And now he is a quote, estate and property optimization. That's what he's involved in. What does that mean? Estate and property optimization. It means you're a fucking rip off landlord. (laughs) (laughs) You contribute. Andrew Button contributes nothing to society. Yeah, not even a good Chinese. (laughs) (laughs) That's not Chinese food. Stir fry noodles in the clearance section and some like soggy old veg does not a Chinese dish make. Um, And I've got news for him. His wife's definitely cheating on him. Uh, There's no question. Yeah, because the picture of him on Twitter... Soggy veg is what she calls his his undercarriage to the man next door. The hot man next door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the Asbo neighbour who's yeah, like yeah. dead sexy and has a devil dog. <laughs> <laughs> this bit will totally be edited out. <laughs> and Andrew Button. Andrew Button is LARPing as a member of the bourgeoisie. Do you know what LARPing is? Is this, a, is this like um, when you pretend to be like a medieval knight yeah, or something? Yeah, But that, for a long yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> Live action role play. Yeah. L-A-R-P. Um, but Andrew Button is wearing like a barber jacket in his Twitter profile pic. So who's yeah. that guy who's a survivalist? Uh, who was Bear Grylls? Yes, that's who that guy wants to be. He wants to be Bear Grylls with his supermarket noodles. <laughs> yeah, this is he could do his own series, How to Survive No Deal Brexit, with all the clearance food. But can I just say, like, on a a sort of more serious note mm. see like his calculations of the food right so I actually I haven't done this I wish I had because it would have made me sound like I knew what I was talking about but actually see if you added up the fact so he's saying it's basically 97 pence per head for a family of four mm. for one meal yes and sorry so that's like four pounds for one meal if you've got a family of four and say so you need to like you feed your family three times a day so, like, actually, when you begin to add that up... It's it much done, more than the dole. It's, yeah. it's way more than that. Yeah. It's way more than that. Just on food. and that's Just on food. So you're not paying for, no, like, your rent, your rent yeah. Yeah. gas, electric, clothes, transport, none of that. This is Like, a- Andrew Button is deeply out of touch. But, I mean, he's not the, he's not the only one. Like, people think... Because they're so invested with this idea, like, people's brains have turned to worms. Yeah. Because they think that... Like, I don't know, people have loads of money lying about, even though folk are struggling to get I think sometimes, I think someone like him imagines that everyone lives on the same street in suburbia as him, more or less. And the difference is wages. Mm. I mean, this this is a major misunderstanding in contemporary society. Wages, income by wages, has very little to do with wealth anymore. Yeah. Like, it's all about assets. It's all about what you own. It's all about savings. It's all about much less tangible things than than the wage. That's actually a really outmoded understanding of capitalism yeah. you know inequality in societies people with different wage rates that's not yeah. what we're talking about it's, yeah uh, that accounts for a very small amount of, of, of the other wealth. thing is that i think gets missed out of this conversation a lot is that it's dead expensive to be poor yeah like if you are like right on the bread line you don't have a car that you can nip in to drive up to i don't know the big tesco's at a particular time usually quite late at night to yeah. get these bargain deals. I mean, you can't buy in bulk like, because you're literally going from month to month, sometimes week to week. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? You just, it's very expensive to be living on the breadline. Like, the poorer you are, the less, like, economic opportunity you have to deal with, like, economies of scale oh, or yeah, get yeah, yeah. decent credit with a decent, like, lending rate or whatever it is. People, people who've never been poor will never find out how expensive the world is. I mean, I remember being on the dole. Um, one thing I, I noticed was uh, there was less and less light bulbs in my flat. And one broke, <laughs> yeah. couldn't afford to replace it. So the, the area of light in my flat sort of shriveled down eventually yeah. to sort of my bedroom and the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I had to uh, economise. I think, I mean, I can't understand how anyone on the dole, assuming that they have nothing in the bank or are in debt, which is almost everyone who's in, on the dole, how can they ever buy a pair of shoes? A yeah. pair of shoes of any quality, a pair of shoes that would disintegrate in three months will cost you half of all the money that you have yeah. for a week. Yeah. So things like shoes just don't get bought. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, but this is, 
there are people obviously making policies who have the same understanding of like well that's, that's daily economics is this that's day. that's the point isn't it yeah there's another really good um video that's been doing the rounds on twitter and it's a american senator um, who's grilling the head of um, J.P. Morgan Chase. Oh, yeah, I've seen this, yeah. yeah. The one where she's like, you deal with these multi-billion dollar contracts and huge budgets and like loans. Can you tell me how your employee manages to survive on the wage that you pay? And, you know, he can't answer. He can't answer. Like, mm-hmm. he just doesn't, like, it doesn't pay enough to work in that job. To survive, yeah. Um, so yeah. To well, yeah. I mean, there are so many industries now in capitalism that couldn't function without the explosion of private debt. Yeah. Like, yeah. No question. Like, it's that whole thing of like wages have been kept so artificially low for so long. I mean, take the public sector. Mm-hmm. Like, we're talking like pe- people have lost collectively millions of pounds. Yeah. Like from their actual wage packets. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only way people are surviving is is through private debt. I don't think wage recovery has lasted 18 months before the new recession. Yeah. Now it's just going down again. <laughs> Do you know what I, I and I, I kind of put this out on social media, it, was, it struck me really suddenly at one point that so a couple of things have happened in the last couple of weeks that have convinced me that we've entered a new sort of ideological moment, which is that essentially a global recession has been declared and everyone just shrugged. And the other thing that happened sort of at the same time was the Jeffrey Epstein stuff. And I thought, we have a situation where basically everybody accepts that Epstein was either murdered or allowed to commit suicide, Mm. right? I mean, I would just say, for the record, he was so murdered. (laughs) Um, And... uh, Not that I'm defending Epstein, but I just... Clearly he had a lot of information on a lot of very powerful and important people. Yeah, I mean, I was even watching one of these kind of guff news 24, BBC 24 um, shows called Beyond 100 Days, which is a bit more kind of chatty and international than uh, some other BBC news stuff. And they just said, they were just like, yeah, what what happened here? Because it makes no sense. Uh, This guy redrafted his will two days before he died. I mean... uh, I'm doing the strokey chin emoji right now. (laughs) Um, he'd been taken off suicide watch just about 24 hours later he tried to kill himself three weeks before there was no one else in his cell there were no cameras no one was watching it's nonsense but here's the thing so I've not seen any serious kickback against the conspiracies around this Mm. because I think more or less everyone has a a, a version of of what happened and it's become basically impossible to discount that and then at the same time, like I say, this recession happened. And no one asked questions about it. Nobody mm-hmm. said, um, like they did in 2008, obviously 2008 was the most spectacular crash. But no one, and then people said, how could the God fail? Whereas today people are like, how could it not fail? Yeah. Like market failure is what we know. Yeah. It, it, the thing that would shock people at this point would be like rising <laughs> prosperity. Yeah. People would, would yeah. have to ask questions about it. Which is a very different stage in the development of modern capitalism. I mean, I feel like for our generation particularly having... You know, I forget sometimes that, you know, when the 2008 recession happened... I mean, it was way more dramatic than what's happened since. But previous to that, there was also the dot-com bubble, which I Mm. do remember. Like, I do remember the kind of the real, like, drama and tension around that, the way it was talked about in the news... Like, a lot of people, like, especially in the States, had bought into the dot-com bubble as, like, a way to, like, you know, this is what we do to, like, pay for a kid to go to college. Like, we will invest in these companies. And then, you know, them falling apart, that having, like, quite a massive impact on the way that we talked about economics. But nothing ever changed. Mm -hmm. And then you have 2008, and we still have this situation where there is no fundamental structural change in the way that things are the yeah. way that like the finance sector works there's no real difference all of the so i guess there is i mean i suppose there's a sort of cynical sense of no surprise yeah yeah but i, I think that that's it's quite a bad place for sort of the the esteem with with which the ruling class has traditionally held itself mm. that we've arrived at a situation where 
not only is nobody surprised by the failures of the ruling class, they're completely cynical and accepting of them. And uh, and the ruling class aren't rushing in to say, no, 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 we can save this. No, 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 don't worry. We've you know we we've realized what's going wrong. We're gonna. There's nothing like that. There's no there's no public account uh, of what's going on. No, I mean, I think that the ruling class are busy building their spaceships and rockets to other planets so that they can get out of here <laughs> when, like, climate catastrophe is happening. They can go terraform mm-hmm. in other planets. Like, seriously, that, that's what's happening. That's what people like Elon Musk are doing. Mm-hmm. But actually, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? They're building rockets so that they can, like, zip out of here whilst the, the planet burns behind them. Yeah, and he's become a symbol of, like... The, the good type of ruling class he's the worst like I have uh, a like real problem with the billionaire philanthropist like I think that is the worst type of yeah capitalist like I want I can deal with my capitalists when they are basically Monty Burns <laughs> from <laughs> the Simpsons yeah do you know what I mean although someone was telling me recently that Bill Gates has come up with this a scheme that he wants to invest in a project to block out the sun <laughs> to stop climate change. But actually, I do think that was a plot line in The Simpsons that Monty Barnes wanted. Yeah, to. That's it right. is, isn't uh, it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but do you know what I mean? Like, I can deal with capitalists when like there's a raw kind of nakedness to their interests. Mm-hmm. But this billionaire philanthropist model doesn't work. It's never worked. I mean, Elon Musk is a great example. When there was the um, those kids stranded, the oh, yeah, yeah, where was it? it? Was Thailand, wasn't it? Yeah, and he wanted he wanted to be the guy who saved them. Yeah, and he was told no, and he he savaged the uh, yeah, he just the like guy went around like did. calling the guy who did the pedophile. <laughs> like, yeah, um, yeah, um, but speaking of ruling class philanthropists, uh, an article on Connor. That I put out. Oh, light money. The, the, the light money thing. Um, so for anyone who hasn't checked it out yet, there's a new article on Contour by David. It's called Light Money. Well, that that was one It's of, about light money. It's about light money. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? So, yeah, this is a thing that's, that's sort of increasingly worrying me uh, in an era where... The, the left has lost an independent orientation because it's lost so much of its organisation. It's lost so much of its ideological territory in the last 20, 30 years of neoliberalism that now that the, the left is sort of, in recent years, the left has been sort of tentatively reimagining as an idea, but without independent organisation, mm. without an independent media, yeah. without an independent press. Well, this is like, I mean, just as a quick aside, like this is, I think, the most important project for the left at the moment is to like actually build and develop our own institutions and our mm-hmm. own organisations. Yeah. Like, and that isn't going to be necessarily like through electoral politics. Yeah. Let's be honest. Well, this is this is part of that that crisis because actually one of the things that's happened in the left in recent years is the is that the project of organisation has been abandoned. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting um, thing. So in Scotland, for example, your left wing, almost everyone joins what is essentially like a parliamentary, almost bourgeois party in orientation. So the Greens or the SNP or the Labour Party or whatever, the concept of constructing political organisation outside of parliamentary avenues mm. has been next to forgotten. Mm. But, yeah, so so part, part of this is the intrusion and involvement of wealthy philanthropists, super wealthy philanthropists, in the media, in the organisation of what could broadly be described as the left. People are sort of aware, well aware of this phenomenon on the kind of parts of the left which are going a bit kind of like sovereignist is sometimes the phrase, but sort of, you know, like blue labour. Yeah. Right? I mean, Spike's claim to be left wing is incredibly thin, right? But to the extent <laughs> that they would identify as left wing, I mean, that's a website that people aren't acquainted with. It sort of puts out kind of shock type, uh, contrarian uh, yeah, kind it's, of left. The editor is still Brendan O'Neill, isn't it? Yeah, and he's the guy most associated yeah, with. Yeah, and I mean, he's yeah. like classic kind of... I mean, contrarian's a very polite way of putting it. Yeah, it's sort of deliberately kind of winding up the left or, or sort of more kind of like liberal opinion 
which has proved very, very lucrative. But one of their, it was revealed a while back that one of their sources of money was the Colt brothers, who are like uh, super rich, right-wing, libertarian Yeah, American. one of them's dead now. Yes, uh, one of them died. David uh, Colt died recently. I hope one day they will, very soon they will be reunited. <laughs> well, I, I kind of think he's one of these rich people who's... Uh, frozen himself yeah. you know what I mean yeah, so of course perhaps in different ways than you imagine <laughs> have a robotic Coke Brothers sort of uh, yeah going about but so that that in, in, in left wing circles was like a scandal because it proved the influence of big right wing money on sections of the self identified yeah. left and uh, there's then there's this sort of like uh, dark money um, thing which is a number of journalists have followed donations passed around between people on the right of British politics linking together like the DUP, the Scottish Tories with sort of links to sort of, uh, you know, Bannon in the, in the mm, US, mm. money raising efforts there, right wing think tanks, all this kind of stuff. No one ever gave us money when we did rise. Oh, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's very annoying. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, we literally had... No money. <laughs> and um, for when we were doing radical independence, do you remember Shafi cycled round Aaron? That's that's tragic. <laughs> I mean, was it was it uh, was it really worth that? We should have gotten the blower to to George Soros and uh, asked for some bucks and said, "Look, we've got this guy who wants to cycle around. It's a tragic sight." Can you not just, you know... Well, there is actually a photograph from Jonathan Shaffey's cycle around the With George Soros. <laughs> <laughs> That's the story. It's uh, Shaffey just after he's finished the race. And oh, I think God. that Jonathan Shaffey has deleted every version of this picture from the internet. Yeah. So maybe if people sign up to our Patreon, mm-hmm. I'll give them a copy of the picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like the gift that keeps giving. Yeah, stick that on a mug. But, yeah, so uh, this was an investigation... Partly done through Open Democracy, which must be one of the most read left-wing sites uh, on, again, what could broadly be described as as the left. But that's... But here's the thing, right? So there's dark money. And, and by the way, I think it's, like a, it's a valuable investigation because it is interesting mm. to watch how those links and those networks work, especially at the time when lots of people in the ruling class are falling out with each other, yeah. right? Uh, over the, like the future orientation of like British capitalism and yeah. stuff like that, yeah. but the donations to Open Democracy, if you just go onto the uh, donations page, includes Open Society Foundations. That's George Soros's foundation, mm-hmm. the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, all of the big name, big money yeah. foundations. Right. Um, it also includes the National Endowment for Democracy. It's the CIA. Which is <laughs> which is the CIA, uh, yeah. more or less, right? Well, the, uh, the National Endowment for Democracy, I think it was actually set up by the Congress. Yeah. But it's funded, I mean, it's funded repeated attempts to overthrow the, uh, uh, you know, the Venezuelan government. Yeah. Uh, it's funded weird far-right movements in Europe, all kinds of twisted stuff, right? Mm. Uh, and of course, all of these foundations, like the National Endowment for Democracy, claim that what they're doing is spreading liberty and spreading democratic mm-hmm. ideas and democratic institutions around the world. We all know what that means, yeah. right? This is the projection of American power, of the power of the of like the wealthiest. Yeah. Well, I think that we do know what it means, right? I think especially for our generation, like being radicalised around like the war in Iraq, being mm-hmm. radicalised around questions of like Palestine. Mm-hmm. And we do like, I think that there's part of the political tradition that we grew up with that talked about American power. Mm. I don't really feel like we talk about American power on the left anymore. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? We talk, like, people talk about, like, Trump being bad. Yeah. But Hillary would have been better, which is just, that is not a left-wing position. No. At all. No. Uh, There is no critique of American power anymore. And I think that this is why the kind of, like, light money, like, philanthropy, billionaire, the whole sketch has managed to get such a foothold because, really, we don't have that tradition of analyzing power state power mm-hmm. like imperialism we don't talk about that stuff so th- this is the thing for me the the light money they are they are the most dangerous element of the ruling class yeah principally because they're the most powerful 
But one of the reasons that they're the most powerful is that they are sort of hegemonic in the mm. truest sense, which is they're able to extend their political appeal into much wider layers of society than someone like the Koch brothers can. Yeah. The Koch brothers can only appeal to evangelicals, quite hard-right political yeah. sentiment in yeah. a country like the United States. Someone, you know, like, something like open society extends the ideals of the rich all the way from the super-rich to large parts of the political right, all the way through large parts of the left, mm-hmm. of, 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 sort of common sentiment in, in society. But this is the thing. Why is that not dark money, right? I mean, you could say uh, because it's out in the open. Why is it out in the open? Because it's hegemonic. Yeah. People should look at those donors and say, hang on a minute, what is this, right? Yeah. They don't because they have, on some level, accepted the hegemony. They've, they've accepted the, the legitimacy of that type of rich person, of the most powerful mm. type of rich person. I think that there is a kind of, there's a psychology for the left to grapple with here though, which is because we don't have institutions of our own because we're not building organisations of our own. Like, what do we do in the meantime? Mm-hmm. You know, so is it better to have nothing yeah. <laughs> or to have something funded by like money? Yeah, and, and inevitably what that creates is uh, a limitation of the strategic outlook of the left to whose side are we on mm. in, in, a, in a faction fight between different elements of the ruling class. And some people on the left have said, and this is, this is to me, most exemplified by Remain and Reform, right? Literally what you are signalling with Remain and Reform is, to that element of capital, uh, we won't hurt you. We want to have an argument with you about how society should be run, but we're in a state of political unity against the dark money, the right-wing forces, yeah. that sort of, sort of thing. And that, to me, is a disaster. Yeah. Because it means that I... you will never break from or challenge the institutional life of the society in which you live. And at that point, your claims to being anti-neoliberal or for sort of democratic reform are very threadbare. It's rhetorical at that point. Yeah. And I mean... there's, there's a lot of that. There's, there's a lot of people... And the supposedly radical left, for whom their, their their radicalism is entirely rhetorical, and their concrete political proposals are extremely conservative, and it's for because of exactly that situation, you know, a wealthy philanthropist at the Ford Foundation or Open Society is totally fine with you saying we need a redistribution of wealth. Yeah. It's it harmless. It's, it's... It's manageable. Yes. It is manageable. Like, and this is what I see as a sort of general political trend at the moment is the manageability of quote unquote radical ideas. Yeah. Like, so I think that there is like big co option of left ideas that are being seen through that type of like manageable prism for the ruling class. Yeah. Like, especially things like climate crisis. Yes. Because that's the other big thing that I think has been happening is this. Uh, declaration of a climate emergency. Yeah. Have you declared a climate emergency yet? <laughs> Have you declared a climate emergency in your life? Um, <laughs> no, but it, 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 yeah, again, this weird mushrooming of purely rhetorical radicalism, rhetorical emergencies. Um, I just don't, I, I don't see how this declaring a climate emergency allows people to do stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems to me like for a lot of the ruling class, declaring the climate emergency is the action. Yes. It is the action that they do. But it, the thing about the climate emergency is that it has some kind of, it does have radical roots. People who are actually engaged in opposing climate crisis, for example. Like the parallel that I would make is, do you remember Make Poverty History? Mm-hmm. Of course, yeah. Yeah, so Make Poverty History, that being like a huge thing around Glen Eagles. And the way I see it is like this climate crisis as a political concept is similar in you know like the make poverty history mm-hmm. campaign mm-hmm. so when make poverty history happens it's actually it's become this big tent right yeah, <laughs> with, yeah. with bono in it right? yeah. taking up a lot of space yeah so you know it's make poverty history it's a big tent it's all about like drop the debt and the jubilee campaign which actually see when you like scrape right down into that 
it's a lot of like good anti-imperialist politics yeah and drop the debt because it's kind of anti-neo-colonial yeah yeah. and it's part of like the anti-globalization stuff it's about it's a critique of the world bank and imf so you actually have there's quite a hard edge to it Mm. but by the time it gets to like big yeah it's do i mean it's bono totally meaningless yeah (laughs) and it's meaningless because it's this idea of like we need to build the biggest possible tent and that's what i see happening with climate crisis is like we need to build this huge tent that can include people like billionaire philanthropist bill gates yeah but this creates a huge problem because what it means is that you can't actually talk about the solution to mm-hmm. the crisis yeah like you can't actually say well it's capitalism like capitalism has like well, one solution to climate crisis, which is for all the super rich to jet out of here, the rest of the remaining rich and ruling class to govern over us mm-hmm. in a really terrifying, horrible, Mad Max way. Well, this is the thing. Like People say um, there's no solution to the climate crisis. Do you know what the solution, the ruling class's solution to the climate crisis is? 40,000 dead people in the med. I mean, but that's just the start. Yeah, that's just the start. Just yeah. the start. Like, mm-hmm. so I'm thinking like way more apocalyptic than that. That's just the start. Like, we're already well into that. Mm. You like, you said something interesting about this recently to me. You said um, that the declaration of an emergency is inher- inherently sort of political. The declaration of an emergency sort of means that you can do emergency measures. Yeah. Right. It, it implies, when you declare an emergency, it implies that sort of imagined community thing yeah. of, we are all in this emergency together. Yeah. It's not that I have created the emergency. I'm trying to protect you from the emergency, yeah. right? Which means that we all have to pull together in yeah. the same direction. So we all have to pull together. Yeah. And in order for people to pull together, you've got to be polite, right? So you yeah. can't actually say, no, this is your fault. Yes, you can't say like, this is your fault. Do you know what I mean? The continued exploitation of the earth for resources in order for capitalism to continue to grow and resolve its own contradictions yeah. is your fault. Like, yeah. And we're going to be the ones paying for it. When you have a big tent under emergency measures, it's very hard for the left to be able to make that argument. Yes, Do you know what I mean? So instead what happens is that those radical ideas get completely diluted. We can't put forward the solutions which actually challenge the mode of production. Mm -hmm. And instead there are pop figures Mm -hmm. who are very easily co-opted into the big tent like Greta Thunberg. And this Mm -hmm. isn't, you know... I'm not, we're not going to sit on a podcast and be rude about her. Mm-hmm. David just made a face. <laughs> we're not, but we're not going to be rude about her. But it is very easy for someone like Greta to be co-opted. Mm-hmm. She's she's a fascinating figure because unlike someone like Bono, right? Who's her, very dislikable. Who's very dislikable. The whole point of the the Greta thing is that um, she's like she's the vessel. She's like the innocent vessel who is brought into this weird social ritual. You know what always reminds me of, right? Uh, E.P. Thompson, right? I think it was, I can't remember, something he wrote about the way that the feudal class structure was reproduced, right? And there were lots of strange rituals in the feudal era where the local knight or landlord or whatever would come into the village, uh, like 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 a Saf village, one day out of the year, and he would live as a Saf. For one day and someone from the village would be elected to be the landlord the laird or whatever for one day mm. out of the year and through this ritual class antagonisms would be sort of dissolved mm. in this humorous mm. ritual where the hierarchy of society was kind of explored in like an ironic way mm. right uh, well, not ironic because it's the Middle Ages and irony didn't exist, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you'd be LARPing as a laird, <laughs> yeah, right? Um, <laughs> This to me is like, what's going on with the Greta Thunberg thing is, it is like a ritual. It's a strange ritual in which people explore contemporary class hierarchies and their impact upon the natural environment. Greta Thunberg has toured around groups of ultra-rich and powerful people who sit there with tears in their eyes and sort of gaping mouths as she like denounces them. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like lots of societies have rituals like this, like like denunciation rituals, yeah. where public grievances are aired in a way that's containable and controllable and doable. Yeah. So Greta Thunberg stands in front of uh, a legislature or like um, like the EU Commission, 
and in a sense absolves them of all their responsibility for what they're doing. Yeah. And they'll sit there with tears in their eyes, despite the fact that they're the people who are, I mean, the Amazon's burning right now, yeah. partly to make way for an EU trade deal uh, that's recently been signed with Latin American countries. Uh, this the, the Amazon is being burned to supply European markets. Like that is actually products. a decision. Like Bolsonaro yes. has made the decision to burn the Amazon. If Bolsonaro made that decision. The EU's ruling bureaucracy made this decision, and then all of them will happily sit in front of Greta Thunberg with tears in their eyes as she says, "Why are you killing my future?" the The operation of it is cynical, but it's more than that. Mm. This is about containing public anxiety about yeah. climate change. I mean, I, I definitely see it as a, a way for, you know, the audience at something like Davos mm-hmm. to be able to at least feel like they are doing something. Yeah. There's a psychology for them where yeah. they feel that they listen to Greta, mm-hmm. they declare the climate emergency, which kind of meant nothing apart from creating a giant taboo around capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> and they can just, you know, feel like they've done something. You know, it's the equivalent of me, like, recycling my glass. Like, yeah. as, a, as an action, it's, it's kind of meaningless. Yeah. And, and it's very much like trolling dissent. Like, that's what's happening. It's like yeah. any dissent towards the ruling class, any class antagonisms that are exacerbated through climate crisis Mm -hmm. are just being controlled. Mm -hmm. I mean, a few years ago, this would have been a classic point at which someone in the sort of anti-globalisation movement would have raised the issue of, like, like the corralling and the control of, like, legitimate Mm. dissent. Picking a voice out of millions of people and saying this is the legitimate voice through which all of this dissent will be channeled and so on. In those days, I might have said you know, tried to be pragmatic about it and said, you know, oh, yeah, but it's still an opening, it's still an interesting social process and so on. The problem is today, people aren't Mm. saying that about Greta Thunberg. What's happening instead is, in parallel with what we were discussing, the faction fight in the ruling class, the way in which the left and the right are being divided into the two different camps over it, instead what you're getting is anyone of left-wing opinion lining up more or less uncritically behind the Greta Thunberg ritual. And saying, no, this is good. This is a, an absolute moral good. And then you've got people on the right, the kind of new right, you know, people like Aaron Banks and stuff said something about, <laughs> tweeted about how, you know, she was going to fall off her boat and drown or something and like that. And he's just a mean girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's another one. Um, and uh, Julia Hartley Brewer, who's supposed to be a, an adult person, tweeted at her like, I'm getting on a plane. There's nothing that you can do about it, right? <laughs> she was sailing across the Atlantic. Um, but this is the thing, right? Then that resulted in, a, in another social process, which is about containing dissent, which is the right and the and the sort of, you know, the kind of the, the liberal left and the hard right having a go at each other in this mutually reinforcing sort of grievance culture, right? Yeah. It's such a pointless political dynamic from the point of view of someone who wants radical change. Because Aaron Banks gets to let off some steam and say, I hope this little girl drowns. Uh, and gets to feel a bit dangerous for saying that. And then lots of people start to, like, the, the, the liberal blowback against that is lots of people feeling good about the fact that he said it. Lots of people feeling good that they were right about who this big nasty man is. Yeah, right? I think it's, it's almost like that kind of online culture wars yeah. being replicated in real life. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's and that's... restructuring politics. Yeah. yeah. And people seeking out those views which reinforce what they already think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's really, for me, it's like, I think it's killing the critical discourse. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's seriously... I mean, in many ways, the most clever thing that people like Trump ha- has has done is confirm in the minds of liberals... All of their worst fears yeah. about the political yeah. right. He's the nightmare come true. Yeah. And, and he enjoys that. He enjoys that. And also, it paralyzes your opponent. Yeah. Because what can you say? There's no point. I mean, those tweets that I read out there, there's no point in saying that Donald Trump uh, is an anti Semite. I mean, he is, but so what? I mean, this is, that's, the, that's the political world he's created, but he can only do it because there's not a sufficient radical opposition. That, that for, for whom concepts like racism are meaningful as opposed to sort of tidbits in the cultural war. Yeah, meaningful and something that is structural. 
Yeah. And something that is, do you know what I mean, that we, we understand as like a structural part of society, the yeah. same way that we see sexism as a structural thing, do you know what yeah. I mean, like not offensive tweets. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, the point of what people should have taken from what Trump said there was not, um, was not offence. The point should have been to say, look at the ways in which the public demand by politician for complete loyalty to Israel mm. as, a, as a project mm. has basically reimagined anti-Semitism mm. for the contemporary era where um, all Jews everywhere ought to be completely loyal and uncritical towards the state of Israel and they're suspect if they're yeah. not. I mean, that is deeply anti-Semitic. Yeah. So, I mean, I would really like on another episode to get into some of the stuff around like anti-Semitism, the Labour Party, yeah, the role of the... I mean, I'm doing scare quotes here, but like the liberal left in the Labour Party having systematically undermined Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. I really want to get into that kind of discussion. I think that's that's, but I think that's probably a whole other podcast. Yeah. And so maybe we should do that next week. I kind of wanted the outro music for the podcast to be that song that Greta Thunberg has recorded. Oh, job! She's got a song. She's got a song. She's got a song out. Yeah, she's fucking Bono, mate. <laughs> 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 What's it like? I don't know. I've not heard it yet. Let's make it the outro. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's do that. I will ask people to follow Contour on Twitter. Yeah. Follow Contour on Twitter at Contour. No, oh, at Contour Scott. Is that what it is? Yeah. At Contour Scott. <laughs> <laughs> follow it. Um, just say follow us. Also, we do have a Patreon page. Um, we want to make Contour into like a really good project um, we need some money to do that so uh, all donations help light money yeah. not welcome yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is a message to you Mr Soros <laughs> your yeah, he money's thought, not welcome he here he thought he could buy us off but he can't yeah. the remaining cock brother thought that he could buy <laughs> us <laughs> yeah so we need your money instead <laughs> Please, yeah, Denise, and we promise that the podcast will get better as time goes on as well. Did anything you want to add? Yeah, cheers for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks. and ecological crisis and we need to call it what it is an emergency we must acknowledge that we do not have the situation under control and that we don't have all the solutions yet unless those solutions mean that we simply stop doing certain things we must admit that we are losing this battle We have to acknowledge that the older generations have failed. All political movements in their present form have failed. But Homo sapiens have not yet failed. Yes, we are failing, but there is still time to turn everything around. We can still fix this. We still have everything in our own hands. But unless we recognize the overall failures of our current systems, we most probably don't stand a chance. We are facing a disaster of unspoken sufferings for enormous amounts of people. And now is not the time for speaking politely or focusing on what we can or cannot say. Now is the time to speak clearly. Solving the climate crisis is the greatest and most complex challenge that Homo sapiens have ever faced. The main solution, however, is so simple that even a small child can understand it. 
we have to stop our emissions of greenhouse gases. And either we do that, or we don't. You say that nothing in life is black or white. But that is a lie. A very dangerous lie. Either we prevent a 1.5 degree of warming, or we don't. Either we avoid setting off that irreversible chain reaction beyond human control, or we don't. Either we choose to go on as a civilization, or we don't. That is as black or white as it gets. Because there are no grey areas when it comes to survival. Now we all have a choice. We can create transformational action that will safeguard the living conditions for future generations. Or we can continue with our business as usual and fail. That is up to you and me. And yes, we need a system change rather than individual change. But you cannot have one without the other. If you look through history, all the big changes in society have been started by people at the grassroots level. People like you and me. So I ask you to please wake up and make the changes required possible. To do your best is no longer good enough. We must all do the seemingly impossible. Today, we use about 100 million barrels of oil every single day. There are no politics to change that. There are no rules to keep that oil in the ground. So we can no longer save the world by playing by the rules. Because the rules have to be changed. Everything needs to change. And it has to start today. So everyone out there, it is now time for civil disobedience. It is time to rebel.